And if you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. We've been walking together through this passage actually for the last uh, three weeks, and we've been considering uh, the Advent themes or the classic Advent themes of of, uh, hope, peace, and joy, themes that we see running throughout this running throughout this passage. We saw how as God's people, our hope isn't rooted in some sort of abstraction, like it's not just it's just hope or a wishful thinking, uh, but it's rooted in the past. It's, it's a hope that's being held in the present. It's hope that has eyes looking towards the future. Our, our hope isn't a what, it's not a when, it's not a, it's not a where or a how, but it's a who, right? I mean, our hope is in our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. The empty tomb is proof for us that our hope isn't empty. It's in our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who holds us presently, who holds us with an inheritance for the future. We saw how God's, as God's people, our peace, our peace isn't found in any political victory, it's not found in any moral or cultural victory, but our peace is found in the fact that right now, uh, that right now, at this moment, we are being held by the hands of God Almighty Himself. It struck me as we were singing that last uh, chorus of that song how the angels in heaven must really, really like Sundays on earth <laughs> when their voices are being echoed by the people of God singing praise with them because we're being held, because we have a peace because of God Almighty who's holding us It's not that he just has an inheritance. It's not that he holds the inheritance for us, but that he holds us for the inheritance. This is just as important for us. He doesn't just just plan the party in heaven. He doesn't just invite the guests, but he actually came to earth to bring the guests home to the party with him, to seat us at his table. And we saw how God's people, as those who by God's grace have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as those who have received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone for our eternal life, that we know that true joy is found in our salvation. It's in the gift of life that God gives us through the atoning sacrifice of His Son. It's what the little one said down here on the floor. Why do we celebrate? Because Jesus died for us. It's really that simple. It's that simple. That's where our joy is found. It's rooted in Christ. This is why I get concerned Every time uh, that people hear the good news of salvation and they just stare at me as if they've just read the like fine print on the, or the whatever, on like an Apple product, you know, it's just nobody reads that stuff. Joy is an emotion. It comes through. It's an emotion that doesn't lay dormant, but one that actually rolls up, that stirs up into joyfulness, into praise, into glory and honor. It's why, well, it's why we're here today. And that's the reason we're here today. It's not because there's nothing else to do on a Sunday, but because there is one thing that we're called to do, glory, praise, and honor to our King. So would you stand with me? Would you stand with me now? It's our tradition here to stand as we read the Word of God. So would you stand with me as we set our hearts and minds, our ears, even our souls on the Word of God? Let's tune our hearts to hear His Word this morning. This is 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask for you to come this morning. It's not that you need our permission. You've been here. Uh, you, You were with us in the car. You were with us when we were fighting with our kids this morning, trying to get them dressed. You were with us when we were running late. You were with us when we thought we were going to be early and hit traffic. You have been with us every single step of the way. So we're not giving you permission. We're begging you to come and do work amongst us. That you would come and open our blind eyes to see you that you would come and unstop our deaf ears so that we might hear from you, that you would come and awaken our souls this morning, Lord, that we would know you, that we would know you, and and that we would find our hope, our peace, our joy, and the fact that we are known by you. Lord, would you come and do that this morning? Come and do that work that we can't. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Now, you may be seated. One of the things uh, you have to appreciate, or I say you have to, I have to appreciate about the Apostle Peter is that he's writing this letter as a firsthand eyewitness to the, to the life and ministry of, of Jesus, right? He, he, one of the critiques you often hear about the Bible um, is that it's unreliable because it wasn't written until like hundreds of years after the events had taken place, all right? So you can't, you can't trust that because there's too much outside influence. So you can't trust this Bible because it wasn't produced until, until sometime around the, the years of Constantine. And if you, if you wait until then, man, you can't rely on this thing. And, and back when I was in college, there was a group call, going around called the, uh, called the Jesus Seminar. Um, they were a group of, of just highly publicized scholars. Uh, and in fact, they were the guys writing the textbooks that I was using in undergrad at a state university doing religious studies, which, by the way, um, I'm not sure I recommend that for any human being, much less any Christian. But anyway, uh, they were these guys, and they argued that the Bible is basically just a, a collection of historically unreliable legends about this uh, Palestinian Jew and around the turn of the uh, turn of the century that we just happened to, by the way, change the entire calendar around his life. They, they neglected that part. But anyway, they, they said that no more than 20% of the sayings and actions attributed to Jesus in the Bible can be historically validated. 20%. That was it. And at the time, these, again, these were the guys writing the textbooks. These were the guys who were, who were the, the higher critics of the evangelical world. And, and ironically, a lot of them would claim to be Christians. They just claimed a weird type of Christianity that I'm not sure... Uh, well, I'm absolutely sure no actual Christian would say that's Christianity. Um, some of you remember the Da Vinci Code phenomenon that happened back a few years ago where Jesus was presented as a great teacher, as a great moral guy, a man who certainly had a following, right? People definitely gathered around him, but he was, 
he was essentially just a guy who was used as a, as a cultic myth by some church leaders who were trying to, trying to grab some power within the Roman Empire. That's, that is the prevailing pop culture Discovery Channel version of Christianity that you still find today. It's that these people, it's that you and I, okay, that if we believe that, if we believe that Jesus was, if, if you've ever preached the gospel to yourself, you do understand there's, there's some stuff in there that sounds a little odd, right? That we believe that this man was born of a virgin, which we know is, is abnormal, right? If, you're, if, if your daughter said that to you and when she was pregnant, you wouldn't believe it, right? There would, there would be some things that you, it would raise some flags, right? So we believe that he was born of a virgin, that he, was, uh, that he did all sorts of miracles, that he walked on water, that he healed... That he, that he gave eyes to blind people, that he opened deaf ears, that he healed lame men and made them able to walk, that he died on a Roman cross, even though he was innocent and perfect, and that he was put into a tomb, but he didn't stay there. He actually got up and walked out of that, even folded the grave clothes because he has good manners, and that at the end of all that, he went ascended up into heaven, just, you know, however that, I don't know what that look like I just acted it out for you, and now uh, you've seen my version of him, you know, just going up into the sky, and people, and you believe that, and we go, yes, yes, we do. That's what we believe, and the people, most of the world will look at you and say, you, you're crazy. Like, you know that, right? The majority of the world right now, if you said, this is what we believe, this is why we have a tree in the building right now, that we're celebrating Christmas because of this man that most of the world will look at you and say, I think you're crazy. I think you're out of your mind. No, you can't watch my kids, man. I don't care how many background checks y'all do. That's, that is absolutely insane. You see, you don't belong in this world. And that connects us intimately to the lives of the early church. In the opening of this letter, Peter addresses it. You can see this in verse 1. He says, uh, it's to the elect exiles of the dispersion. That's what it says there in verse 1. And he's not talking about political exiles. He's not talking about people who aren't in the right country. He's talking about spiritual exiles. He's talking about spiritual sojourners. He's talking about a people, about Christians, who live in this world, wherever they are in this world, as foreigners in this world. And so what that means is that it doesn't matter if we are in Pontus or Galatia or Cappadocia or Asia or Bithynia. It doesn't matter if you're in Columbia or Irmo or Lexington or Texas or New York. It doesn't matter where you are. It's not a geography issue. The reality is that once we are in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. That's what Paul says, right, in Philippians 3.20. He says that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means for you and I today to be elect exiles. It's that it's really not about what your passport says, because your citizenship isn't in this world. I will caution you, though, if you travel internationally and you try and use that verse to get you on an airplane, it ain't going to happen, all right? You, you, you need to have your passport, okay? Peter understands this. He understands this reality. He understands what it's like to be an outsider in this world. You know why he understands that? He understands that because he's living it. And he's not writing this letter hundreds of years after the life of Jesus, as, most, as a lot of these scholars would tell you, but he's, it's more like 30 years 
See, this letter is being written to churches in about 62, 63 A.D., somewhere, somewhere around there. Tim Keller has said this means that the biblical accounts of Jesus' life were circulating within the lifetime of hundreds who had been present at the events in his ministry. You see, Peter was one of those guys. He'd been present. And he's writing to some who had been present, to a, but to a lot of them who hadn't been. He's writing to people who hadn't seen it. And so when he's writing to these elect exiles, to these other people who had been chosen in Christ for a life of not fitting in in this world, this is what he says. This is verse 8. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Listen, listen Peter's writing to you. You understand that, right? Peter is writing to you. This is us in this. And some of this is really, really hard for the unbelieving world to understand. That you would love, that you would love that which you have not seen. That you would believe in, that you would trust in. That's what that word believe means. It means to trust in that which you are not now seeing. That's what faith is. You see, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, right, of things not seen. But when we start talking about love, that's our theme for today. That's the last one of the Advent themes. We've done hope, we've done peace, we've done joy. Today it's love. When you start talking about love, what we know is that we need to be really clear about what we mean because there is no denying at this point in, our, in, in the world that love has become one of the most hijacked terms in the English language. We, we use it to describe our feelings on, on everything ranging from our families. Like, I, like I, I love my wife. I love my children. I love, I love you people. Um, we'll, we'll use it to describe the people in our lives, how we feel about them. And we'll also use that same word to describe the taco we had at San Jose on Friday night. I've had, listen, I've had grown men, smart men, like men that I respect, and still do, who have stopped me in the middle of the day, just like a Tuesday, not a special day, just a regular day, to tell me how much they love a certain type of sock, right? I mean, these dry fit things, you gotta, you've got to have some of these. I've had people drop them at my office. These are the socks I was telling you about. Just trust me, it'll change your life. I love these socks. And I'm thinking, man, this is... And again, I, there's nobody in this room, by the way. So we need to be clear. And if it was, it's okay. We all do it, right? We need to be clear what it means to say that we love, uh, to, what it means when we say we love. The word there in the text is the Greek word agapao. Now, I've never claimed to be a Greek scholar, and y'all know that I don't quote a lot of Greek words to you, but we're doing it today because it's Christmas and we're, out, we're, we're just a little out there, all right? Some of you will be familiar with the word agape. We know that one. That one we're pretty comfortable with in the church. We say that one a lot. The word agape is a noun. Now, again, if you failed English as a child, this is going to hurt a little bit, but we're going right back to that, okay? Uh, it's a concept. That's the, agape is the fullness of what it means to love. And agapao, okay, which is pow, you can almost visualize this, is the verb form of agape. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Well, in this case, what Peter is saying is not just that you love Jesus in sort of the formal, sort of the disconnected, sort of the abstract, uh, philosophical way. 
He's saying that you love Jesus, that you agapal Jesus, this one whom you have not seen, this one who you have not seen in a very dynamic, even sacrificial way, a way that can be noticed, a way that can be seen. It's that this affection for Jesus is so tangible, it's so pronounced that it's being seen and it's being heard by the people in this world. And any rational person, if that even if that even exists at this point in time, would have to ask the simple and incredibly involved question, why? Why can Peter write verse 8 at all? Though you have not seen him, you love him. The Bible gives us that answer. It gives us a clear answer to that question of why in the world we would love Jesus, even though we have not seen him. And it's found in 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 19, where the evangelist tells us we love because he first loved us. By the way, that is literally we agapow because he first agapowed us. That's that, now, that's not grammatically correct. And if you write that on a paper, you're going to get a red circle and an X or something, right? But that's what that verse literally translates. We agapow, we demonstrate love, we act in love because he first Agapowed, he first demonstrated, he first acted in love toward us. Turn over to 1 John 4 with me for a minute. Just a second, because I, I want you to see this. 1 John chapter 4 is just a little to the right of, of where you are. When we get towards the end of the New Testament, the books are short, so you don't go too many pages or you'll be in the, you'll be in the like index or whatever. Um, we need to understand how it is that Jesus first loved us. We need to feel the weight of that truth. I want you to feel the weight of that this morning because, because without that, some of, this, some of what's coming won't make any sense. It's starting in verse 9, 1 John 4, 9. If you're not there, it's okay. Just you, you'll play the game next time. Here we go. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And here's verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're using that. We're going to just go through the basics of the Christian faith. You know, it's probably time for us to do kind of a rundown here. We're at the end of the year. Let's just go through, we'll just go through the five basic uh, tenets that we have in the Reformed tradition here. The first is that we are born in sin, all right? That's, that's the default setting that we come with. The classic Calvinistic expression is that when you are born into this world, you are what's called totally depraved. And if that doesn't sound good, that's, that's okay. It, it, it's, it's bad, all right? To be totally depraved is not a good thing, right? It's what Paul tells us, that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And being dead is generally not considered a good thing either. We, we, I'll give you an example. We bought a car one time, a new car. We made that mistake, so learn from us. We bought a new car, and, and we'll never do that again. And, um, and everything went wrong with it. Everything. The radio broke. The air conditioner stopped working in the thing in South Carolina in the summer. The, uh, with a baby. We had babies at the time, so they were sweating a lot. The air conditioner stopped working. The transmission went out. The little thing that tells you how much gas you have, it stopped telling you how much gas you have. So when you've got a wife with no air conditioner, she ain't happy already. And then when she, her gas runs out because the meter said it was full, but it's not full, uh, she's real unhappy. 
I literally ended up driving around with gas tanks in the back of my truck so I could come and give her gas. You might say you sound like a failure as a husband, and so would ha- she would have echoed that. It was awesome. It was a good time for us in our marriage. Um, <laughs> the only thing on that car that never broke, ironically, was the brakes. All right, um, That's how it came from the factory. It was brand new. had four miles when we drove it off the lot. Right? They took plastic off of it like a Christmas present when we bought the thing, and we thought, this is going to be it. We'll never buy another car again. So we, we were idiots. And, um, and so that's what, that's what we thought, and, and every single thing broke. That's how it came. It was a broken car from the start. Everything was broken. Listen, that's how we come into the world. It doesn't all happen at one point. You don't see it all at one point, but we see the sin in our life manifest itself in different ways throughout our life. Sometimes it's the air conditioning. Sometimes it's the radio. Anybody have a problem with their mouth? That's the radio of your heart, by the way. Your mouth gets you into trouble every once in a while. That's how we know that we are broken. Here's the second thing. is that God chooses a remnant of humanity a people to be called his sons and daughters. This is the election that Peter is talking about when he calls them elect exiles. It's that in his sovereign will, God chooses to bring enemies into the camp. That he brings you into the walls. He makes orphans his children and he holds on to the inheritance for us that we've talked about the past couple of weeks. That's what we call unconditional election. That's the phrase, unconditional election. It's not based on your merit. Like you can never deserve it. You didn't politic for it. Nobody has, I haven't never seen it, but nobody's ever put a sign up in somebody's yard saying, God, please elect me. That's not how it works. You don't invest enough money that God goes, okay, I guess I have to vote for him. That's not how it happens. It's that he chooses it. There are no conditions that you have to meet to be chosen. It's just that God in his sovereign will chooses a remnant for himself. That's unconditional election. And then those whom he chooses... Those whom he chooses, he redeems. Period. There's no caveat. It's not that God chooses you and then he sees if you work out. See, that's what we do, right? In the world, we elect someone and then four years later we go, eh. Actually, like six months later we go, eh. And then we spend the next three years rethinking what we've gotten ourselves into. By the way, that's not any particular person. That's literally all of them. So if you are running for office, I love you. Be the change, man. Just like be the one that we're like forever. Keep him in office. Um, just tell the truth. That'd be cool. Anyway, um, so that's, that's not how it works with God, though. God chooses and that's it. He doesn't choose and then rethink that. He doesn't choose and go, man, I really thought this one was going to work out. But whatever. He's not a good dad. He lets his wife run out of gas. It's just not, let's, let's, let, him, let's let him go. No, God chooses. And those whom he chooses, he redeems. That's the propitiation that John was talking about. He sent his son to be the propitiation for us for our sins. It's that Jesus came to make atonement for you and for me, to pay the penalty that we deserve for our offense against a holy, righteous, and just God. And some people will say, well, why doesn't God just forgive and forget? I mean, why wouldn't, why wouldn't he just let us off the hook? You see, that, that's not how justice works. God wouldn't be just if there was no penalty for the sin committed. He might be lenient, but he wouldn't be just. And so Jesus is our propitiation. He is our atonement. It's what Calvinism calls limited atonement. It's that the sacrifice of Jesus, the exchange of his life 
for mine was enough to cover every sin, every sin of every man in all of time, but it's applied particularly. Some of us have, have motioned for, for that to be changed from limited atonement to particular atonement, but if you're familiar with the five points of Calvinism acronym of TULIP, um, TUPIP doesn't work as well. So that, but that is particularly applied. It's limited not in its, not in its efficacy, but it's limited in its application, who it's applied to, its particular atonement. This is really important for us to know. And when, he, and when we have eyes to see this, we have eyes to see that God sovereignly chooses those, that he elects those, and that he, he dies for those, he redeems those, we get a glimpse of what we call the irresistible grace of God in Christ. And we understand that this is the most one-sided exchange in all of history. It's that Jesus takes our sin upon himself, and we receive his righteousness. It's, that, it's what John says, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's the irresistible grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we know that he holds us to the end. We've talked about that. It's that we will persevere to the end, not because of the strength of our faith, not of our will, but because it's God Almighty himself who holds on to us, that he holds us in the grip of his own hand. And there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's what we call the perseverance of the saints. And that's why we love Jesus. That's why we love Jesus. That's why we love one we have not seen. It's that he did this for us. He reconciled you and me to the Father, making peace for us with God through the blood of his cross. He received the justice that you and I deserve that we might receive the inheritance that he has earned with his perfect life. That's way better than a taco, man. I mean, even a San Jose Lexington taco, right? Those things are legendary. Even, a, even, a, even like a taco from, from one of those really high-end taco places, right? This is better than the socks, even if they are dry fit. This is better than even happy socks, right? This is better than all the socks that you could ever get. This is good news, being expressed through the agapal sacrifice of Jesus for you. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's that being loved by God, we love his son, Jesus Christ. And sometimes we say that out loud, and we don't worry if the world thinks we're crazy. And then Peter gives some imperatives that roll out of that. Look at verse 13 in 1 Peter 1. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered to us in the gospel. It's not that we do church club really well. We don't just wear the right t-shirt. We don't have the right sticker on the back of our car. Like it's not learning a few songs that you can sing. It's not learning the right vocabulary words so that you can fit in with different Christian people talking. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Telling someone Merry Christmas instead of holidays does not make you, or Happy Holidays, does not make you a Christian. That's not, that's not what that does. To be a follower of Christ is to understand that Jesus alone paid the price for me so that by faith alone I might trust in him for my eternal life. 
It's understanding that Jesus alone paid the price for me so that by faith alone I might trust in him for my eternal life. It means that our hearts look forward with anticipation for when he is going to return, when we will be exiles no longer. In verse 14, same chapter, we're told that as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That means that it's time for you and I to leave behind the baggage of the past because that's not you anymore. I know that some of you need to hear this. It means that we flee from the sin, that we war against the sin that would so easily entangle us because to sin now, as a child of God, is actually to act counter to our new identity in Jesus. Lust and greed, envy and jealousy, hatred and anger. These are passions of your former ignorance. Some of us have forgotten that to be in Christ is to be born again. That's what Jesus said in John 3. We need to remember that in Christ, we are a new creation that the old has passed away. You know what that means? When it says it's passed away, it means it's dead, that it has died, that the old you, the old you has died. That's what we've heard, that he's been nailed to the cross with Christ, that that old you is dead. You know, I have never in my life walked into a graveyard looking to make some new friends. I've never done that. By the way, you shouldn't. People will get concerned. Quit looking back at your former self. Some of you need to, some of you need to look back at your former self and just say, Be, you're dead. You need, to, you need to let yourself off the hook because you're hanging on to baggage that Jesus already paid for. Quit looking back at that former self. He's dead. Paul says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old is gone. That's not you anymore. That's not your identity. That's why Peter says in verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. You see, that's part of your new identity. It's not just that the old has passed away, but he says, behold. He says, look, see it. See that the new has come. It's not just the negative that the old is gone, but it's the positive that God replaced it with the new. Will you start living like that, man? Will you walk like that's true? Will you talk like that's true? We've said it a couple of times here in the last few weeks. Will you start to smell like that is true? Will people smell the aroma of Christ on you as a new creation when you carry yourself in this world? Give yourself to others as if that is true. John says in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers for too long. For too long, the church, that's the big C church. That means I'm not talking about the church you used to go to or the church that you go to now. I'm talking about all of us. So then, yes, I am talking about the church you used to go to and the church that you're in right now. For too long, the church has given, has been content to give to nameless faces, to support the building of walls instead of the advancement of the kingdom. Like, Like maybe you're not, maybe you're not naturally good at laying down your life for others. That's okay. Most of us aren't naturally good at that. But that's one of the reasons the local church exists. That's one of the reasons this body exists, is to practice here among your family that you might learn to live like that in an exile, as an exile in this world. I'll tell you a quick story. A few weeks ago, one of our members uh, got a phone call she didn't want to get. 
that the, the test came back in a way she didn't want. And it was, it, as you can imagine, this wasn't a great day. It's not one that we write down and go, thank you, Lord, for this bad phone call from the doctor. And before she even got home, practically, one of the members of her community group was there at the door with a meal for her family for that night. You know what I tend to do? So I'll confess, this is me telling you how bad I am. Enjoy this. I'll go, let me know if there's anything I can do for you. And, and honestly, hope that what? That there won't be. That I can say, yeah, just let me know if there's anything I can do for you. And then, and then the phone won't ring or ding or whatever your shake, however you do your phone. Before she even could get, this is for you. I don't know if you need it, but I, I bought it. So here's dinner for you. That's what it looks like. That's why the church exists, or at least one of the reasons. That as we, as a people, gather together, we begin to demonstrate these things for one another. So that when we go out into the world, it becomes our second nature. Or as Christians, our first nature. Because this is who we are in Christ. This is what we're called to be as Christ's people. We're called to walk in love. Peter tells us in verse 17, look at that, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That, that's not to walk around scared That's, that's of, what, like, of what the world is going to think of you, of what the world might take from you or say about you. It's not to live in a fear-induced paralysis. No, it's, it's that as the new creation, we live with a healthy, motivating, positive fear in this life. It's a holy reverence for God, knowing that God is in control, and quite frankly, knowing that we aren't. It's knowing that if the world isn't bowing to your desires, like there's a good reason. You're not the king. It's knowing that God's plan and purpose for me are better than my plan and purpose for me. That's why we call it faith. One of my favorite men, a man who poured poured into me throughout my life, used to constantly tell me, and some of you know this man, and you may have heard this. In fact, you'll probably, you'll probably know who I'm talking about. You'd shake his hand. He had, very, he had monstrous-sized hands, just being frank with you. It was kind of weird. But he would shake your hand, and his would hit your elbow, and it just felt super weird. But he would look at you dead in the eyes and just tell you very simply, keep the faith. Keep the faith. When he was telling me that, I always felt like he was telling me, you just remember that God is God, and you're his. That's what the faith is. And so we walk now in faith. We walk in love, love that manifests itself in love and faithfulness, which usually looks like self-denial and love for others. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the love of Christ. Sally Lloyd-Jones calls it, you will know this, it's the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. One of the primary ways, one of the primary ways that we do that is to love one another from a pure heart. That's what Peter says in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see, we love because why? Because he first loved us. Because he first loved us. When we understand the love of God for us that carried Jesus to the cross for us, to die for us, it liberates us now to live and love one another. 
Isn't that what Jesus said to sum up the great commandment? We love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We give to him in faith that he will carry us. We sing to him with joy, knowing that he will hear and be pleased. We pray to him, knowing that as our Father in heaven, he wants to hear from us. We give him all of us, trusting that he already has it anyway. All of our scars, all of our baggage, all of our mess, and yet God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, right? Still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for the you, the you that you wouldn't want anybody else in this world to know about. He died for the you that you keep hidden from even those closest to you. And he did that because he loves you. You know, there's a second part of that great commandment. The first is that we love God, that we love him. But Jesus summarizes the second table of the law by saying we love our neighbors as ourselves. We love our neighbors as ourselves. We enter into the lives of others because he entered into our life. We don't run away from the mess of others, but we actually step into it because he stepped out of heaven and into our filth. We carry one another's burdens because Jesus carried our burdens to the cross and we love one another as long as there is breath in our lungs in this life because Jesus loved us to the point of death. This is what we're called to be. This is the love of Christ for you. This is what we celebrate as a church. It's that Jesus won the battle that he has given to us as a gift, the victory over Satan, sin, and death. And so we can live today for him, walking in the grip of his love, even while exiles here on earth. Let's do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd forgive my fearful nature. I pray that you'd forgive my desire to, to be liked. I pray that you'd forgive me for hiding I pray that you would ignite a fire in your people for you. That we would be known as a people who love Jesus. That when we celebrate Christmas, people know it's because of Jesus. That when we eat a meal and we say the blessing, it's because of Jesus. That when we serve in this community, it's because of Jesus. That when we talk to our spouse in a loving manner, it's because of Jesus. That when we raise our kids in the nurture and care of the Lord, it's because of Jesus. Lord, help us to get comfortable with that name. Because there's no name higher. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.